This is Geek Gab with your host, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Saturday, February 19th, 2022. We are coming to you without the graces of my gracious co-host, Dornall, who is currently on a retreat. And I don't know if this is a company retreat or a spiritual retreat because he did not trust me enough to let me into his confidence, to let me know what he was doing. But he is up low in the mountaintops of Washington State on a retreat. Uh, he's going to be gone for several days, uh, including today. We have a guest on the show today, a friend of mine that I have known for low 30 years, uh, who is a development development manager, and he reassured me that manager was, in point of fact, the correct word before he started the show, development manager at Paizo Inc., who has a Pathfinder 2E adventure path live now on Kickstarter. And before I bring him on the show, because uh, you can't see this, I have him on mute, so he can't say a word until I allow it. Um, I uh, I know Ron. His name's Ron. Ron, the lunatics. Lunatics, Ron. Um, I shouldn't say lunatic. The horde. Uh, the warriors. I don't know. The boys, Ron. Ron, the boys. Um, Ron played in my uh, Shadowrun campaign way those many, many years ago. And Ron also played in uh, the Glories Warriors Torg campaign and in point of fact, um, gave the campaign its name. He came up with the name Glories Warriors for the Storm Knights uh, in the campaign. So uh, Ron does not only go way back chronologically speaking, but uh, we did a lot of role playing together uh, over the years and then uh, we also did a lot of living Greyhawk together. So, as soon as I put push the unmute unmute button, Ron, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness, that is without a doubt the most enthusiastic intro to anything I've ever been on. Thank you. <laughs> welcome. Um, huh. I should I should warn you in case you're looking at the chat. Um. The boys are, are various varieties of OSR and BroSR. When you tell people, you can now tell them you have friends in low places because uh, I am indeed one of those friends. Me, I'm your disreputable role-playing friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh gosh, but I have to, I have to, to say so much of who I've become as a player has been some of the fantastic, due to the fantastic times we had together when we were much, much younger. Those campaigns we played together, the Shadowrun, the Torg, especially all kinds of different stripes of uh, uh, D&D and fun times like that. It was, it was good. It's a lot of who I am as a gamer today. And frankly, the fact that I am in gaming as my career is because uh, I've had a lot of friends like you that made it really so much fun, really worthwhile to do. And we had, uh, I wanted to say this on the air because I thought it was so funny. We got, uh, part of the bro SR is this absolute jihad against, uh, character backgrounds. Just, you know, people write up five or 10 page character backgrounds 
it's it's like uh, garlic or sunlight to vampires. But <laughs> I wanted to mention Abe Lake, um, Abraham Elliot Lake, who was a Tord character, a Storm Knight, who began just as a bum, right? But just as what? A bum. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a bum, like a recovering alcoholic. He had been a mechanic, but was down on his luck, unemployed, living on the streets, just, just, I mean, forsaken by his family, you know, estranged from his son. This was the, like the low point of this poor guy's whole life. And then the world all goes to hell. And that's it. And then everything else about the character came from what happened in the campaign he just grew and developed according to what stuff you ran across and what you know skills and tools you picked up and if things had gone a different way in the campaign he would have gone and became something completely different than what he became oh absolutely so absolutely so and i think that there's a uh uh part of the personality that came out came out from the fact that there are plenty of role-playing games where it sort of just set them up and knock them down. Here's another room full of goblins. Go ahead and carve through. But so much of the, the storytelling that was involved in the campaign that you were in was all about, what does this mean to other people? What does it mean to people that are looking up to you? What does it mean to people that have expectations of you, right? This is a very vibrant living world, and that changes who a person is in it. So, yeah, definitely. Um, but anyways, uh, and I don't know why this keeps on coming into my mind. The other thing I wanted that just kept on coming into my mind when I thought about you coming on the show was what happened to your poor dwarf in, uh, (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness. Oh yeah. That is a, uh. I mean, it's a delightful memory for me as the player, but oh golly, it not as the character. Uh. <laughs> it, it, it was a small tactical miscalculation. Yeah, there Did was. You want a, to tell that? No, you got this. I, I no, go ahead and tell it. But I want to preface it by saying everybody's got some stories in the role playing history. Every role player has the stories of some inter party conflict, but I have not yet ever had one to top this story. Um, I don't want to take the whole story away, but, but the very end of this was the party had to break up to do some legwork. And they knew they had bad guys after them, had hostiles after them. And so when the party was divvying up, who was going to go where, they just said, okay, I'll go with you and you go with them. And nobody realized or had thought through the fact that they were sending both Deckers off on the same mission. And, and they got waxed. They just got killed. And I'm like, well, it's Shadowrun. What you gonna do? It was it was a lesson. No, I thought you were going with the uh, the part of the earlier part of that character where I was bound and determined to murder another party member. But I knew I only oh. had one shot, or her super powerful vampire plus a whole bunch of other abilities would absolutely make me pay 
immediately for the betrayal. Now, I do remember getting story. gunned down. That's a uh, that that was an issue of how uh, oh dear lord, how many times do the enemies get to go before I get to go once? Oh, I get to go. I limp feebly down the street. Okay, now they're going to keep on going. <laughs> oh. You can tell the vampire there was a yeah, interparty conflict and the and the and the Decker Dwarf decided, hey, I've made a lot of new yen, and this person is really ticking me off, and I'm going to invest in, in trying poison. to maneuver yeah. around. Some kind of poison that I knew would be, this, the vampire would be particularly susceptible to. I don't remember the specific details, except there was absolutely no way I could have passed this assassination attempt off as an accident. Or, oh, I had no idea what that would do, right? No, it was plainly like <laughs> vampire assassination plan from the beginning. And I had to keep it all quiet. I don't I thought she could read minds or something that made it even more risky to undertake what I was undertaking. Ugh. Yeah, she had... That was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got this plan set up. I also remember your character picture, which was the best. I don't even remember my character picture now. Your character picture was just the haircut, the very top of the hair of your dwarf. <laughs> oh, that's right. Because on the assumption, it was like something like a driver's license camera with a fixed height for what would be, uh, you know, mid, mid, you know, chest up for a uh, human sized figure. As a dwarf, I only came to the very a, bottom of that. And then you had a little thought balloon above it with a Nguyen symbol in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, out for the money. That's true. Oh, man. Um, so, okay. So you, you've got this set up. you got the poison. You've got it all set up. You know that if you don't pull this off, she's going to squat you flat. Yes. my story just like that that's it that's all whoop did you i get out you did yeah i knew that was happening or would happen okay so what happened next already um i feel like i had to back down at the last minute and then work hard to hide a bunch of evidence. And I don't remember what mission we were otherwise on, but I kept trying to pass off what in what I thought was a really feeble way, my sudden backtracking. And in my character's mind, I'm like, oh, I've been foiled this time. But it made me even more determined to go through with this assassinate the other character plan. The problem was I couldn't go any further with it because we, I mean, we had our job to do like as shadow runners we had stuff to do and i got thrown into this situation where we split up the party that you described and we just got gunned down in the street and i thought like it was either me or the other somebody was trying to like <laughs> plead for the other people like look we'll we'll you know we'll, we'll join your side you know we'll uh we'll give you any kind of information and they were they were remorseless uh, assassins all and so the prospective assassin got assassinated in what is from a literary perspective an entirely appropriate way 
So, yeah, we had a man. Sorry, we're the chat is discussing the static on the line, which oh, weird. is unfortunate. Um, sorry, guys, it, it's tech issues. Entity on the gab, but for a long time, not major, but you know, it, it's an old tradition. <laughs> um all right so that's the past that's the you know long ago past so bachelor stuff um do you want to go through and talk about your history how you got into it or do you want to just skip ahead to the kickstarter um well i can give a little a little bit of background i had uh you know i went on to uh law schools very sort of happy career as an attorney for a long time but i did a lot of freelance writing for games uh, a lot of different, a lot of different games, frankly, but mostly, uh, mostly Paizo's Pathfinder game. And when they had an opening for a developer, I threw my hat in the ring. I thought that could be a, a really interesting career change. I wasn't unhappy with what I was doing, but uh, but I thought I could be happier trying to turn my hobby into a career. Uh, and it's been so. I got the job and moved my whole family out to uh, to Washington State. Uh, and I've been doing that for, gosh, almost four and a half years now. It's been, it's been wonderful. Uh, I, uh, common wisdom is if you switch your career, try to make your hobby into your career, then by about the three-year mark, you people tend to suffer their greatest regrets and wish they could jump back. Uh, I'm now four and a half years in and haven't gotten to any real regret stage yet. Um, still do a little legal work on the side, which is kind of keep my, my foot in the door with that. But primarily my, my whole career is now all in games. Uh, recently, uh, about a, um, I want to say maybe eight months ago, got a promotion at work. So now I've got a, a kind of a small strike team of folks that do a lot of the narrative work for the Pathfinder games. Uh, gotten a lot of accolades for what we do. And, uh, I'm still keeping up a lot of the, uh, the very aggressive freelance schedule. I was talking to somebody the other day saying that I've already turned in about uh, there we are um already turned in uh somewhere just shy of a hundred thousand words of freelance work so far this year and they're like wait you, this year that we're only like 49 days into I'm like well yeah I'm <laughs> I, I'm an I, I I write aggressively and uh, turn in uh, you know well well polished work that I do. Quickly, so. Yeah, but anyway, um, all along the way, one of the things I've wanted to do is share some of the things that I've learned um, in not only stuff that I write, but stuff that I work as a developer that I see other people write for me. Um, and so I've wanted to kick off. I kicked off sort of a, a blog. Uh, which I've sort of let my power for too long to give people advice about how to do game writing. And that's everything very big picture to what makes good villain motivations to very, very detailed, like here is the right way and the wrong way to draw an angled hallway on a map. Um, so, and everything in between. But in 2019, uh, I set out to, to sort of demonstrate that writing these big, huge campaign arcs that go from level one to level 20 is not as intimidating as many people think, that if you break it up into chunks, come at it with sort of an analytical approach, you could put together an entire 
first level through 20th level adventure path. And, and I did it on my blog in the back half of 2019. I said, all right, well, here's, here's my general overall plot, a kind of a regional map and a story that I want to tell. And then I proceeded to sort of kick through like, all right, well, here's what, and I didn't do it anything like order, right? I'm like, here's what chapter three might look like. Here's what chapter 16 might look like. Took me several months to get everything together. But by the time I was done, I presented on my blog for free an entire first through 20th level adventure path called the Scaldwood Blight. Um, But I didn't leave it at that. I worked with a really good friend and mentor in the industry, Owen Casey Stevens, um, to put that together in a more, uh, in order in the first place. Um, and then a lot of introductory matter, kind of smooth through some of the rocky parts of the plot to drop in all the stats you'd need, some art, more maps, kind of pull everything together in like this really great thorough way. Uh, and I ended up with something like something on the order of a 250 page book that tells this whole campaign from first to 20th level. And he he has Kickstarter experience. I have zero Kickstarter experience, but he said, hey, this is a thing that we could probably kickstart in order to, to, to gauge interest in. I said, that feels great to me. I, I dislike backing a Kickstarter. I dislike backing a Kickstarter and then having the thing kind of just disappear. You know, it happens as part of the platform, but I know I had already, I had always told myself I wouldn't ever feel good about being part of a Kickstarter that wasn't substantially done by the time we launched. And so there was a big gap between when I finished up this adventure path on the blog in order to, and then launching the Kickstarter because it took some time to pull everything together in order to be the product, or at least, you know, 95% of the way there, the product that I wanted to be able to put out. But we did it. We launched and we made our goal within the first week. And it's been fantastic to see so many people so excited about seeing this whole story, uh, the Scaldwood Blight, uh, come to life. That's the that's the background that got me there. So the Scaldwood Blight is blight is set in the North Fells, um, which again, this whole area, the cities. Uh, the main characters and everything is uh, an area you set up yourself. Yes. Yep. It is all campaign neutral. This campaign has a frozen north. This is a good place to put it. Pine forest, snow fields, evil demons, you know, devils that lurk up there. A lot of the feeling that I put behind this was based on a lot of the Conan stories, right? These are the places where, you know, Just, you know, one tough guy or a small band of, you know, real tough heroes go from decadent city-state to decadent city-state with all sorts of uh, danger and wilderness in between, um, and then blanket the whole thing with snow. There, that's the feeling that I'm going for. So it's a little bit Conan, a little bit Viking, a little bit... uh, um, A little bit of that feeling kind of all mixed together in its own sort of setting. But because there isn't a lot that impacts the rest of the world, you'll get people, NPCs, who talk about, oh, the nations to the south in that kind of dismissive way. Like, we don't, you know, we don't condone the the way those soft, soft people in the south lands live. 
um, there's a there's a cultural as well as a physical difference. It means it's a place that anybody can get into the world, drop it in, and run the entire adventure path. When you were uh, putting this together, actually, um, how did you decide on the design of the world surrounding the path? <laughs> well, this is, I, I, you know, I cheated a little bit, frankly. Um, I wanted to do this initially when I was putting this together for my blog. I didn't see any way, I, didn't, I hadn't intended to do anything with it financially um because i wasn't looking to do anything with it financially i'm like all right well what do i have kind of laying around in the art that i own that i bought for other things and the maps that i've used for other things and i found a uh, a map of sort of these cold northern lands with some dots put on it what might be that might be cities and i thought all right well i'm just going to use this right and then what is this oh it looks like there's like this, the cartographer put kind of these ridge of mountains here and there's a dot that might be a city. All right, well, now I'm going to invent this mountain city that happens to be here because it's the map that I had. And I sort of spun the whole world up around this, this resource that I decided to use to sort of anchor everything together. And it turned out to be great. Not only did it pull together a lot, not only did it propose a lot of ideas that I wouldn't have had looking at a blank piece of paper, having this map is a really uh, a neat way to, to reflect those ideas, but it also let me put everything sort of in relationship to each other, right? If this, oh, well, here's this area where all of the arboreals, right, the tree ants, have all sort of been corrupted and gone bad. Well, this city over here wouldn't know about it because it's just so far away and there's no road connecting them. So these people are entirely ignorant about what's going on over on this part of the map because I can tell on the map that there isn't going to be a lot of connection between those. So it, it allowed me to tell the story as I went along in a really, uh, really interesting and uh, inspiring kind of way. So when you're looking at running, at building something for levels one, um, and this is just me, because I will admit, I have never read a, an adventure path for anything. The closest I've come is the uh, plot point campaigns that made their way into um, great white entertainment. Um, uh, you know, like the Vietnam Tour of Darkness book, um, 50 Fathoms, um, the you know, Deadlands Reloaded. Um, I've read through some of those campaigns, but those are not uh necessarily uh adventure path uh they're villain one they're super villain one necessary evil i've read through mm -hmm. um how similar are those to or how different well this, this the structure of a pathfinder adventure path is is necessarily different that's a little bit of a shame because i've also done plenty of those plot point adventure paths and or plot point campaigns and i love them i love the fact that a character can the characters can just decide you know what we're not going to follow this clue that goes north we're going to go south what's down there and i've got an answer for what's down there if they just happen to go off another direction part of the reason that works is because getting into some of the game mechanics a little bit here games like 
uh, the Savage World system, uh, Deadlands, even stuff like 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, are they're a lot more forgiving if your party is of a different level than the challenges you're expected to face. Pathfinder has never been that way. If you stumble into an area that's designed for characters three or four levels higher than you are, you're going to get pasted. And if you skip an area and circle back once you're three or four levels higher, there just isn't any way that it's going to be a challenge for you. You'll just kind of mow through everything right through the bad guy of that little uh, plot arc and think, well, what was the big deal, right? Um, because the math is so, the math behind the game is so hinged upon this difficulty at this point in your character's career. Um, that said, and I've got an exception to that with how I did Scaldwood Blight, but our creative director at Paizo has said, and this is a phrase that stuck with me, he said, we we put together adventure paths. They're called adventure paths. They're not called adventure lots of little paths, right? We're not giving you a web that you go through. We're giving you a trail. And the trail's going to have all kinds of awesome things along the way. But you go roughly in, in, uh, in order along the trail. Now, from a design perspective, it's important to give players choice. And so the choice comes in on a more micro level. The choice doesn't become, oh, do you follow up on this clue that takes you to this city with this evil devil cult in it when you're seventh level, or you do, do you do it at 11th level, or do you do it at 15th level? The way that we put it in on the micro level is we say, all right, well, you're going to go to this city, say at seventh level, and once you get there, there's a lot of individual threads to follow. They're going to lead to the same place in the course of the next level or two, and you've got a lot of individual choice about the order in which you do them. So the players just aren't on, you're not strapping yourself in on a, on a uh, roller coaster cart with no deviation possible all the way through. You've got a lot of choice along the way, but there's got to be some very big signposts that hit you from one section to the other. That said, I've done a little bit of the plot point thinking throughout the Scaldwood Blight. There's one point sort of in the middle of the campaign where the players can follow up on three clues and they take you to three separate different adventures. And if I'm remembering correctly, one, one is for six, one is appropriate for six level characters, one for seventh level characters, one for eighth level characters. But you don't know as players which is which. So if you end up getting into the 8th level one first, there's some guidance on how to make things just a little bit smoother for your players, but they really ought to get the message, holy crap, we're up against some real strong opposition here. And if they go through the 6th level one last, after they're already 8th level and they're going to vanquish the other stuff, the fact that it's a little bit easier for them isn't bad. It lets them feel like they're kind of the, the big heroes, right? Yeah, we're the ones who stepped in and vanquished. So you can end on some really good feelings around the table of people feeling very confident in what their characters can do and what they've become. So there is some room to play with that, and I've done exactly that in the Scaldwood Blight. It's a little harder for me to do, kind of you know, professionally, I guess you could say, doing the Paizo's Adventure Paths, which is what the bulk of my day-to-day -day work is. But I was really glad for the ability to deviate from that, provide more flexibility and options in this Scaldwood Blight Adventure Path. See, there's a, there's a question I had 
about plot points versus the uh, adventure path, mm-hmm. but it's it's just on the tip of my tongue. It hasn't yet coalesced, and I'm afraid <laughs> I don't have I don't have time to think it through enough to pull it out. Um, you know, to pull on that thread enough to to get it out. Um, I'm just oh no, it's about the math. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've noticed about Savage Worlds, which is where you know the plot point campaigns come from is savage mm-hmm. worlds and then i also have like the space uh 1899 plot point on my shelf here um, oh i've been looking to get that i've i f- sort of flipped through that at one point when it came out and i thought that would be a fascinating thing to run at some point is that the scale of attributes is really truncated mm-hmm. i mean you go D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, and that's human scale. And then for superhuman, you have D12 plus two, four, and six. That's it for Savage Worlds. And so the reason why you can have so many things be so close together without being a super challenge is because I mean, you compare that to say Torque, uh, and in and of course in in uh, Pathfinder or D and D, you're looking at levels. You're looking at you know right. first through twentieth levels on an adventure path, and obviously if you've got a first level fighter with points versus a even a seventh level fighter with seven D ten hit points plus seven levels of their Constitution bonus, whatever that happens to be, mm-hmm. or a monster with you know seven plus 10 hit dice or whatever, um, big gap. Or in Torg, uh, there's a division. I mean, once you get about three points, plus or minus, uh, that's a huge gap. You can overcome that as player characters if you got the cards mm-hmm. or if you're willing to spend the possibilities. But otherwise, that's a wall. But in... Um, in Savage Worlds, that's not a big, you know, that's not a big wall. That's a pretty flat plane as far as attributes go. And so I'm thinking that's, when you talk about how they can do a plot point campaign without a lot of trouble with a web, uh, it's based, it seems to me, this is my first guess, is it's based on the fact that their attribute, um, their attributes are so flat or so narrow a scale that they've also i think that is i think that's absolutely true and i think that that is that sort of narrow band of of attributes is absolutely by design and it's it's i i think it's the fact that you pick savage worlds and torg both of those have a very solid mechanic the Pathfinder does not, which is the no, no. I want to, I want to win right now. Mechanic. Benny's in Savage World. Possibilities in, in Torg. Uh, some cards, of course, as well that come into that, that allow you to take sort of any moment or any role that your character's making, and you're able to say as a player, this is the thing I want to succeed at, and I'm going to spend these resources, Benny's possibilities, whatever, to make sure this is the thing that that. I come out ahead on. There are not a lot of opportunities like that 
in D20 systems generally, D&D, Pathfinder, they've got something like Inspiration or you've got something like Hero Points, which can give you a reroll. But a reroll is generally something people are using to take utter and abject failure and trying to turn it into ordinary failure or maybe even a little bit of success. They're not a mechanic that lets you take success or maybe failure, but almost success and say, no, this is where I want to excel and then proceed to excel and blow the top off of things. That allows you, those, those types of mechanics that Savage Worlds and Torg have allow you to throw your players up against tougher villains than they might otherwise be prepared to handle because they can then use those moments and say, ah, oh, I know we've come across the vampire lord substantially sooner than his plans meant or even our plans indicated, but we're going to choose to defeat him anyway because we've got these resources. So that becomes part of it as well. And this is completely off the question, but uh, I was fiddling around with the back of my mind. Um, it is uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, I think, has those bizarre where you've got uh, D14, D16, and D18. Yep. <laughs> I, was, I was contemplating, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but I was contemplating the thought of, what if you took Savage Worlds and just left D12 as the... <laughs> and then for superhumans, you added in, you know... D14, D16, D18, and D20. That would give you some nice, you know, super, especially if you're running like rifts. I can't imagine running rifts with the flat Savage Worlds attributes. I mean, I know they uh, they produce those rule books. I've never had a chance to read through them and, and even look at the system, but man, running a superhero game using those weird to kind of extend the uh, extend the attribute system would be interesting. And it's never that simple. I mean, it's never that simple. I know that every time I put out an idea like that, there's rules that are impacted and there's way too much work uh, on top of all the other work I'm doing. So I can't do it. Uh, it just, no time, no time, no time. Um, but uh, yeah, I always wondered how that would how that would play with if you had settings where superhuman. I mean, and I'm talking really superhuman, not just you know, not just the monsters of of Deadlands re Reloaded, but you know, mega damage armor and mega damage weapons, or Superman and uh, whatever. How that would impact the Savage Worlds game? I just thought those would be a really good way to to kind of blow the top off their scale. Like I said, that's completely off the topic. I'm, I'm dragging us out of the way, but still. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think, I think you're onto something there. I en I've enjoyed using those crazy dice when playing Dungeon Crawl Classics, which I've done only a little bit of, but it also kind of neatly solves the problem that in, in uh, Savage Worlds, that type of die scaling is really hard to find. Earth Dawn, you may remember, did some of that by having a ladder where it was D4, then D6, then D8, and then D10, and then like D8 plus D4, and then D8 plus D6, and then D12. And if you looked at the average that you would 
generate mathematically. It was kind of this nice, even slope, but you can't use multiple. As soon as you start throwing multiple dice in Savage Worlds, kind of the, everything kind of goes out the window because of the way they explode and things like that. So, the, but the math of D14s, D16s, et cetera, makes a lot of sense. I'm going to want to take a closer look at this when I finally get my hands on Savage Worlds did a um, Rise of the Rune Lords, which was Paizo's first adventure path. Uh, they did a Rise of the Rune Lords Savage Worlds edition. And the thing that struck me about that is how do you, how do you mimic the experience that that adventure path, the Rise of, Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path gives, the, the experience that a lot of you know, D&D and Pathfinder campaigns have, where at the beginning, okay, you fight goblins, then you fight ogres, then much bigger giants, and then dragons and other world-ending threats. How do you even set up an arc like that if you're scale if the scaling you do is so flat? The fact that every time, sure, you can get a D12, but every, you're still rolling a one, one out of every 12 times. Um, I'm interested to see how they approach the feel of that escalating foes on the Savage World system. And I wonder if using something like the Dungeon Crawl Classics D14, D16, and so on might be kind of a fun way to help mimic that as sort of a hack for whatever they end up producing for Rise of the Rune Lords. Yeah. But uh, you're right. We are See, far now, afield, and uh, but this is not that. But but talking about sort of game mechanic, game design is absolutely something that I enjoy doing. So this is not a uh, uh, this this is an entirely welcome detour, and it's fun to be able to do so with somebody else who sort of gets the math behind stuff um, in many ways that I'm never going to be able to hope to see. So that is literally the only subject that we get requests for in gen as a general like we want you to do more shows about like we get people who say oh i want you to review this specific movie but the only one who says hey we want you to do like this category of shows more of them is game design oh really <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've done before um just talking about different things whatever randomly comes up uh and like one day i was i was we got off onto like comparing uh how the physical objects at the time in your game make certain things easy or hard um and that was a fascinating little you know patterns dice pools with the d6s make uh make it easier to do their spell defense and splitting it between attacking with the spell and defending the party with the spell because there's a bunch of d6s and you just physically move the d6s left or right and that's how you do divvy them up and you can change every round without having to do anything whereas if you're making ticks on paper it's a lot harder to do absolutely uh, and then you know talking about cards and and just uh cards with torg and, and things like that how how the physical objects you choose to include in your game or how the dice you're using to roll uh change what you can do with the game mechanics it's not just a matter of the rules written in the rule book uh it's it's the physical objects you choose to represent those rules have an impact on the game and as a game designer you you want to make sure to 
think through what they allow you to do and exploit that. Uh, and but yeah, we get we get requests to do more game designy things, just as a general category that we don't get for anything else. It's not that people don't like everything else; it's just we do enough reviews that people don't feel like don't feel like they have to say, "Hey, we want you to do more reviews," because it's like because <laughs> they shot. know you, you they know you'll supply their need that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So That's yeah, fun. the audience likes game design, but we can we can put that aside. I think we've exhausted that. I just. I yeah. love the idea of using those multiple polyhedrals. I wish I had time to I really do wish I had time to think that through and and lay it out and run something from it. But uh, I am I am literally busy. I I have this entire last week. I've had so many things to get in contact with people. I might as well say this. Uh, we've got CJ Corella. Oh, really? and author coming on the show next week um so i was contacting him two weeks ago and then i've been contacting other guests and stuff like that uh and contacting you and uh, oh, i asked jake to come on to talk about comics uh at our next open slot we've got guests lined up all the way through right now the beginning of april so oh fantastic Fantastic. This is this is the literally the only week I could get you on. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being flexible with your schedule to allow me to do so. The um, um, but yeah, there is there is a lot that can be added uh, to a feeling of this is an important thing to me, possibilities or whatever. I love the new. I don't know how much of the new Torg Eternity you've been able to play, but the fact that they've got chips for the possibilities adds a tactile experience that I've seen a couple other places. Paizo does uh, like metal chips for the hero points that they use, some other options like that. But being able to sort of use that at the table, you see them sitting in front of you uh, by your character sheet. You know, okay, well, I can I can at least do this. Uh, I was playing uh, some Pathfinder. Oh, the original Deadlands. Oh, yeah. There is no better example than the original Deadlands as far as communicating not only tactile rules elements, but immersion in the feel of the game than to have yeah, yeah. playing cards and poker chips in a Wild West setting yep. as core mechanics for the game. That, I think that just has not been topped. It, it's genius. It's absolute genius. Shane, uh, Shane Lacey Hensley, designer of the game, just did a brilliant job with that. Yep. But anyways... Please, I, I interrupt you. Oh, I'll no, no, no. That's, so they, to the extent there are um, some extras like that that I'm throwing in for the Kickstarter for Scaldwood Blight, some of the stretch goals, they aren't the physical tactile things. Those are some things that Paizo can and will sell you already anyway, little tokens for hero points that you're going to spend or, or uh, you know, better, more comprehensive character sheets or some of their partners, et cetera. But one of the things that I wanted to make sure to add are the in-game pieces that help you add to your story. Backgrounds are an important part of the Pathfinder game, if only for a uh, <coughs> mechanical benefit. And I found them to be sort of a, a, a story hinge benefit. You don't have to go deeply into a character background to talk about how you used to own a bar, but the bar got burned down and you've 
committed to finding the arsonist that did it, and that's what led you on an adventure and so on. So you could just put point at the word barkeep on your character and say, oh, yeah, I used to be a barkeep. Oh, well, now the tavern owner knows you know his business, and maybe we'll share another couple extra rumors with you or something like that. Um, I wanted to be able to provide those sort of hooks in the Scaldwood Blight so people can say, all right, well, I'm going to have this background. Oh, well, that mechanically means a thing, not only through some uh, a bonus to a, a training and a skill or a free feat that you get, but because I know the whole adventure path from beginning to end, when you get to this point by the time you're 12th level or whatever, oh, well, this, this, this high priest of this temple automatically knows you because you took this background. You used to know somebody who knew them or whatever. And here's a whole sort of side quest or that's unlocked or some easier part of the plot um, because you've got this background. Those are in-game uh, in-game tokens, I guess you might say, that actually have a reason, that actually matter throughout the game. And so being able to throw in some of those connections to the land, connections to the organization, connections to some of the people, I feel like are, are the kind of things that are going to give people the same or similar sense of, aha, this is this is a thing that is about me, and I'm going to be able to run with this as part of my specific play through the game that other people might not have. Um, jumping over to uh, video games, but one of the things I like that uh, some video games have done, most recently, Cyberpunk 2077, is they have three or but who also did it really, really well was Dragon Age Origins um, and also the first Mass Effect game. Mm -hmm. um, they did, uh, in Cyberpunk 2077, you have, you can be a And then you get your little intro story, your little origin story. But then mm -hmm. at several different points throughout the game, when you're talking to an NPC or you come on, you're investigating a scene or something, it'll say corporate. And because you came from the corporate background, you uh, get the option to gain some equipment or uh, to have someone help you or to know a little bit more about a situation that you wouldn't otherwise have um, because of that. And I think that's a It adds color to the world. It makes you feel like you're a real person who's grounded into the world and you don't have to put a lot of time. Uh, it doesn't have to be a real complicated thing. Right. Right. And there's um, a little bit of trust there too. You're like, all right, well, I'm going to take this, this background or I'm going to take this connection or whatever. And I don't need to think, all right, well, I've just made some choice that doesn't matter. You know that the, the adventure's kind of got your back, right? This is going to matter to you. Kind of a wink and a nod. You're going to be glad you picked this. Trust me, you're going to be glad at some point in the future that you took this. And and uh, if you don't give it game mechanic... See, I tried something like... Mephepolis campaign. Uh, third edition... So this is 20 years ago. But my mistake was that I stuck game mechanical benefits for it. And I had about 10 of them. I, I stuck game mechanical benefits. 
And so everybody just chose the one that uh, didn't give them a game mechanical benefit, but it, it kept them from having to deal with another game mechanical subsystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which so is they, its own kind of benefit, right? Being able right. to opt out in a way can be its own benefit. Um, and so, but doing it this way that you're describing where it isn't a game mechanic you have to real you have to remember. You don't have to remember you get a plus one bonus when interacting with, you know, tavern keepers if you're making a diplomacy check. That's kind of a pain in the ass you have if you have too many mm -hmm. bonuses. Mm -hmm. Bonuses are great, but having too many bonuses you have to remember. Uh, even in combat. I mean, players love combat bonuses, but too many bonuses in combat gives you that... I forgot this bonus I would have hit or he should have missed me and can we go back and pain in the rear having it to where it just pops up later where you don't have to remember a constant bonus yeah oh yeah I think that the I mean there is a place for the um, all the individual pluses right I feel like that is one of the ways that Pathfinder really excels is as a combat simulator. People want to get in there. They want to have the fights. They want to be, you know, reaching for every one of those. Oh, wait, did I get your bonus from Bless? Yeah, I did. Okay, I got this. Oh, did I get the extra die from rolling my, uh, hitting with my magic weapon? That's part of the fun. I think some games have backed off of that. Fifth edition D&D backs off a little bit by saying, all right, well, let's just reduce all that to uh, advantage or disadvantage. You know, kind of elegant, but... I think people that are looking for uh, uh, chasing those bonuses, the system already gives them good ways to do that. An adventure doesn't need to layer on necessarily. The adventure handles the story, the narrative, and making sure that you're feeling like you're connected from a character perspective rather than having to use those things to sort of continue to eke out more, more pluses and minuses. So I'm with you on that. One of the things I liked about third edition, and I'm not saying other games don't do this because, you know, I'm pretty sure Shadow does this. And I'm looking in retrospect because I literally just thought about this right now. Um, and uh, Torg obviously did this, is that the bonuses are optional. If you want to be the kind of player who's like a squirrel gathering nuts and you're gathering all these little plus one bonuses, Mm -hmm. You can, but but that's your choice. You know, if you're taking all the feats and you're taking all the class abilities uh, to get those little bonuses, that's your choice. And so you choose to do that. Whereas if you don't want to, you don't really have to, uh, depending on what you want to do. You can choose to be a mage who isn't about the plus one bonus spells. You're about direct damage. Mm -hmm. or utility or whatever um and if you make those optional then the player doesn't really have the right to complain about them because it's like you chose to take them so they're your bonus uh, right. if you look at a game if you look at a game like uh oh spirit of the century um i don't know if you ever played fate uh, oh yeah yeah in fact i just like literally less than a week ago, I played a fate game. So yes. <laughs> Spirit of the Century loaded you 10 different um, 
and I've forgotten the term, and you, maybe you can help me. The the little tag phrases that each give oh you aspects a, they're called aspects. Aspects. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> like two and a half, three years, uh, but that was you know five six years ago. So, uh, but aspects they gave you ten different aspects through character creation. And every fake person I've talked to says that's just too many. That's mm -hmm. just an overload. You're never going to remember them and you're never going to use them. Even five is pushing it. You really want at most three aspects for your character. Then they're ones that matter to you. They kind of distinguish your character and, and you can keep track of them. Whereas 10, you know, most of them just don't ever get used. They just don't. Yep. Um, and it's the same thing. If you have too many plus from bonuses, it's not that bonuses are bad. It's that too many of them just overload most of your players and they're, they just don't want to keep that many. Um, so my theory right now is not to go the, you know, not to go the, the drastic route of taking them all away and going just for advantage or disadvantage. And not that I dislike that mechanic. I think that's a great mechanic. Uh, Actually, I think that's a brilliant mechanic it's, mm -hmm. uh, on many levels, and I've talked about it before. Um, but I think definitely um, the, the way to go is to make it possible for players to modulate the number of bonuses they pick to where they don't have to be overwhelmed. And then so sca scaling the difficulty of the game, scaling the difficulty of the game ties into this exact same point, because one of the biggest mistakes that I feel like the Living Greyhawk campaign did was to realize that as the th third edition, then 3.5 edition of D&D gave more and more and more options, that players who were able to take advantage of every single rule synergy and layer on all those bonuses were just a lot tougher. And so they felt like, well, we have to challenge those players. So we'll make the baseline of adventures harder. And then you've got a real problem with attracting new players who don't have that knowledge or even older players who don't care to apply every single possible stacking bonus they can, who just find the game too difficult. And one of the, one of the things that I've been most satisfied in seeing the, um, the Pathfinder Society that Paizo does is there's a there's a very intentional lowering of the difficulty level with the theory that if you are the kind of character, if you're the kind of player who delights in finding every possible bonus and every rules interaction that are going to give you a combat advantage, the output that you want is not to work and claw and add your way up to a combat experience that is roughly fair. No, no, no. What you want, if you're going through all that effort, is you want to work your way up where you just hit the win button on combats. That's fun for you. Well, let's make it fun for people who want to do that. If you've got some clever combination of rules that can stack pluses in some crazy way and you can show how quickly you can defeat some big monster, they, it, the right thing to do is to let you defeat that big monster quickly. And it's right for two reasons. One, it gives those players what they want. And two, it lets 
in players who don't want to do that still have a fighting chance against stuff. And so I feel yeah. like that's been a, uh, been, been a good success as a good success as well. I do feel like if I can speak a little candidly, if I can speak candidly about the game system that I paid to work on every day, I do feel like the Pathfinder second edition is tuned a little bit on the hard side. Um, a little bit on the difficult side. Um, but I think that's something that uh, we pay attention to, sort of we can ease the pedals up or down a little bit based on that, um, on every adventure path that we do. If I had to, to sort of benchmark the Scaldwood Blight, it probably leans a little bit towards the hard side. From a practical real-world consideration, that's because when I did the bulk of the writing for it, I didn't have the fine-tuned sense of scaling that I do now. It was sort of whatever the default is. The default, I think, tends to be a little hard. But it also has the effect of leaning in on the feel of the campaign, which is this is the this is the rugged land where life is hard, and unless you are skilled or lucky, you're going to struggle just to make it. Right. That's that's kind of the that's the Conan feel, frankly. No, nobody comes through well without some sort of loss or difficulty in any of those sorts of stories. And that's the same kind of feel that I'm hoping people will get out of the Scaldwood Blight as well. Um, I'm playing Dying Light 2, which just came out, and uh, I want to compare it to Dragon Age 2. Dragon okay. Age 2. Um, I really like the mechanics of, but a lot of, depending on what character you're playing, you just had to remember a lot of button presses and different stuff to activate different skills. And I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to mess around with trying to remember all that stuff. So I picked a character class and then a bunch of automatic bonuses that did stuff for me that I didn't have to worry about. I didn't have to think about. Once I earned my way up to them, the game just took the care of it for me. Um, and it turned out to be a really good you know, who was good in combat and had a lot of utilitarian value too. Um, and that made me happy as a player because I didn't have to remember stuff. And the thing I don't like about the combat system in Dying Light 2 is that it is built around a whole bunch of maneuvers that you have to remember um, all of the uh, different button presses to use, and then you have, and and it all boils down to one specific maneuver in order to use all of these maneuvers. You have to block at exactly the right time, and then know okay, now I do this and this and that and come across with the right button pushes. So mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, quick time events. Uh, they don't pop them up on the screen. That's what it boils down to is, oh, he's swinging. I got to defend at the right time and then do this stuff over him and attack the other guy. And I don't like it. I really don't like it because uh, that's not, it's just, it's boring to me to have to remember all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the same thing. It's just contrasting two different ways of playing. 
the first game, if I wanted to remember all of it in Dragon Age, I could. I had a lot of different powers available. If I wanted to use a bunch of active ones, I could remember all those button presses and just go with that, and it's fine, or even just mix them up. But in Dying Light, you can't really mix them up unless you do what I have chosen to do, which is, uh, I don't know, thuggish, bullying my way through. <laughs> going back in i just really badly do combat and, it, and i depend on having a lot of hit points and and uh kind of tanking my way through well did you i had i had a similar choice that i made i do not play a lot of video games um rpgs is where i put my time tabletop rpgs um so i don't play a lot of video games but i did have a good friend of mine bring over her PlayStation 4 and said, Ron, I've got this game I want you to play and I want to watch you play it. I think you will love it. I don't know if you've talked about Until Dawn or whether you've got your attitude of, oh, you sweet summer child, that game is so old. You know, nobody even talks about it anymore. Um, but it's a horror game where the upshot is there's a whole bunch of people and you play how you play the game, I was told from the beginning. You know, I'm not going to give any spoilers. But it's a horror movie, and so some of these people are going to die. And if you're, if you do it just the right way, nobody has to die. But if you're, you know, if you play it just the wrong way, virtually all of them will die. I'm like, oh, that conceptually that sounds fun. I can do that. And so I made some very specific decisions early on in the game, thinking, ah, I want to play this in the way to save as many people as possible. But then I realized pretty early on that a lot of the saving people involves being skilled enough to hit just the right buttons as soon as you're prompted at just the right time or else somebody's going to die. I'm like, oh, at that point, I sort of, I don't say I checked out because I still wanted to experience the story, but I lost any desire to make sure that everybody was going to live because that's when the game told me how, how many people survive until the end of the night is not based on any role-playing decisions you make. It's based on how quick at button mashing you are. And you, Ron Lundin, not being a very skilled video gamer, are not very good at button mashing in a timely fashion. So people are just going to die. I'm like, mm, all right, well, then I'm going to accept that people are just going to die because I'm not going to choose to be the button mashing kind of player with uh, to hone the reflexes in order to do it. So the fact that the game can... It was still a really fun experience all the way through. But I feel like that decision is something that the game, I, I, I was I would kind of told me, kind of expressed to me, here's, here's the result based on the style of play. It's like the difference that you were just talking about uh, between Dying Light and, and Dragon Age. So, yeah, you. I just feel like. Uh... As a designer, you ought to at least be aware of what effects your design has upon players and how the game plays. Um, it, 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 I'm not complaining that they made that decision, but it's something that as a designer, you should at least be, it should be a conscious decision and not just a decision you make because, you know, you inherited it from D&D. Uh, and I don't think, and I'm not trying to point out any specific game. I'm certainly not trying to, you know, 
denigrate the industry for it because D&D has really robust mechanics for a good reason. And even though I prefer skill systems to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, as what I make myself, um, Dungeons and Dragons is a great game. And I will, I have, you know, really, really ardent, staunch traveler uh, GURPS uh, toward defenders and said, look, no, d and is because it's a well-designed, solid game. You know, they had some article, it might've been published in Dragon or some other magazine where the person said, you know, well, here are the four eras of game design with these primitive games. And we advanced to, you know, it began with Dungeons and Dragons, which was primitive design and it advanced to skill design with um traveler and gurps and and whatnot and then it advanced to uh die pool games with Shannon and uh uh the vampire world of darkness games and then and i'm like no that that's not a quote-unquote advantage and, and if you prefer different design movements like artistic movements it doesn't make you more advanced it just means you're doing something different it's just different. fashion mm -hmm. Exactly right. Um, so uh, it, if you're a game designer, you can have preferences for what you'd like to design. It's like an artist to having their own style. But you want other choices are out there if you're designing a game and realize why you're making a choice and what, you know, what knock-on effects that has. Because the choices you make percolate through the rest of your design mm -hmm. um so yeah i like dnd mechanics dnd was a solidly designed game and it it's evidence that it's a solidly designed game that it's gone on to influence every single crpg ever made um and it's gone uh, gone on to and even games that are not uh rpgs uh, use Dungeons and Dragons mechanics behind the scenes. They just don't tell you about it explicitly. Right, <laughs> right. Um, right. Uh, and then, you know, other games use different mechanics because that's what was appropriate for their game. Um, and I love exploring why games use what mechanics they use. Uh, but even like in scenario design or campaign design, uh, like yours you know having that choice right at the beginning uh of the background that has effects later you know that one choice not only does it have knock-on effects for the players that they don't see um but when you're designing different uh encounters or different uh areas or different settings you know oh, here's a tavern or here's a chapel or here's um you know, an outpost of the guard, or here's a trading caravan. Every time you design those, um, the thoughts of earlier decisions you've made have an effect. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then everything is built in along the way. That's the uh, that's the the key thing that anybody who is going to go by a one through twenty level adventure path is looking for is not having to do a lot of that work themselves. They're trusting me as the author to make it easy for them to not only structure the narrative, but give them all the monster stats they need so they don't have to look through a whole bunch of different books, 
but also to do a little bit of the lifting on connecting the characters into the story. And so I want to make it easy. I want to have somebody who picks this up and runs it feel satisfied that they were right. I want them to feel like they were right to trust me to help them tell the story and have a good time at the table. All right. Well, like I predicted, we're about 10 minutes. <laughs> past you wow. You, you just about pegged that right on. <laughs> <laughs> we always shoot for an hour. We always end up in an hour and 10 minutes. And I don't know how that happens. <laughs> um, do, do you have any last words? Uh, before we oh. go, I, I, I should tell the audience, uh, we are talking about Ron's <laughs> Kickstarter for his adventure path. Um, and uh, it is the Skullwood Blight, and the link to the Kickstarter is below in the comments under the video, and the link to his blog and uh, his gaming company website, because they're both available, is uh, below under Runamuck Games. Um, and, uh, those are the most important links. So there were other links he sent me, but those are the two I picked, which happened to be the right choice because I am daddy Warpig. Alrighty. Alrighty. Anything, any last words from you? Uh, no, I thank you for having me on. We've got 11 days more to go for this. As I've said, it is substantially already written. It's already funded. So Kickstarters never guarantee for anything, but I have an awful lot of confidence that if this is a thing you want, it is a thing you can easily get and we'll get it soon. All right. Uh, and uh, I, I want to say this, folks. Ron is an old friend of mine, but he absolutely did not prevail upon our friendship to come on the show. Um, I had to hunt him up and say, hey, uh, I noticed you got a Kickstarter running. You want to come on the show and talk about it? And he quite graciously agreed to come on the show. So, uh, and, and I want to thank him. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being free uh, to discuss all this other stuff. Um, in addition to your... Uh, to your Kickstarter. Um, invite everyone to go check out the Kickstarter and uh, support it, back it if that uh, if it seems something like you're interested in. We have had a bunch of people. Man, I am disappointed. I thought there was going to be a riot in the comments. I was I was ready for a riot. I was <laughs> I was sitting back, waiting to deploy uh, riot control. You know, I had metaphorically speaking. Uh, fire trucks ready to just ready to spray the spray the hoses on people. <laughs> uh. I was waiting for all the all the people to come in and tell me how bad they thought Paizo was, or how bad they thought uh, Pathfinder was, or Adventure Pass. I was like, "Oh, I'm ready. Okay, let's do this, man." Uh. All the combative. All the combative people just took off. I'm like, that was, that was going to be half the fun of the show. All the fireworks. <laughs> well, you took. It's clear you took a risk on having me on here, so I very much appreciate that. Where did all the fireworks go? Gosh darn it! All right, thanks for coming on the show, Ron. Uh, Thank thanks everybody who listened live, participated in the chat. Thanks everybody who listened later. Um, 
we are going to, again, this uh, has been Geek Gab. We're available on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. That is YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. We are usually here every Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. This has been a special time for a special guest. And uh, you can catch us on uh, the Google Play Store, on SoundCloud.com, or on the <laughs> Store. Subscribe to us on the device of your choice or just listen to us on Remember, if you listen to us on YouTube.com, all of the chat will be available, uh, although it will not be as combative as I had anticipated. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, folks. We are signing out for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will. <laughs>